Dante, hello. This is Angelo Baca, Navajo filmmaker and storyteller, and I stand with Bears Ears. You're tuning here into Radio KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine for stories with the message and sounds that transport. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 5th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we'll hear from Catherine Daigle, one last candidate of the March 12th special election to fill the third district seat open in the Orange County Board of Supervisors. In the second segment, playwright James Fritz dials it in from uh, London. So uh, we'll talk about his play being staged soon on campus, Parliament Square. UCI theater professor Jane Page is directing. The play will be performed at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts XMPL theater venue, March 9th through March 17th. My guest, James Fritz, will be appearing at Talkbacks. He'll be in town March 13, 14, and 15. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Catherine Daigle, yet another candidate in the March 12 special election for the open seat in the Orange County Board of Supervisors, 3rd District. This will be the final interview I conduct before the March 12th election, and I will be putting uh, to all of these candidates comparable questions for listeners' basis of comparison. Catherine Daigle has worked as a legal and finance executive more than 20 years as a vice president of finance, human resource, and legal affairs, founding two businesses, KND Legal Consulting and Paralegal Outsourcing and Associates. She served as director to Woodbridge Village Association, as well as on the board of the Irvine Donor Committee, Volunteers for Legal Aid Society of Orange County. A columnist on Politichicks, she's also been a member of the Heritage Foundation, the National Rifle Association, and the Republican Party of Orange County, and has run for several municipal and a state assembly office. Catherine Daigle completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Business from the Metropolitan State University of Denver, her MBA at the University of Phoenix, and her paralegal certificate at Concordia. She comes to us today from Irvine, and after having been a, a candidate on previous Ask a Leader shows, I have to welcome her back to Ask a Leader this time. Catherine Daigle, welcome back. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you very much. Well, I'm asking everybody first to talk about Irvine. It's kind of the, uh, I don't know what pound, how many ton uh, uh, gorilla, uh, elephant in the third county board of supervisor district. Irvine's dominated uh, the concerns and the focus, uh, according to many. And so I'd like to know, how do you see, Catherine Daigle, yourself representing Orange and the other cities, Villa Park, Yorba Linda, Tustin, North Tustin, the Canyons, Anaheim, and Orange Park Acres? Well, I see myself as a um, 
a pretty moderate uh, Republican, and uh, I want to correct you. I'm not part of the OCGOP. I am part of the California GOP. Um, I uh, I believe in our community um, to be as transparent, to allow for huge amount of accountability, which we don't have, integrity and honesty as far as what we should expect from our officials. Um, we, we're all hardworking families, and all of us deserve someone that's going to stand up to these people that have run in these offices many, many, many times and never, ever complete their service as we have here in Irvine. Irvine's a very big place. We've got over three, almost 300,000 residents, and we have lots of problems. And a lot of them have come up within the last year. And similar problems in Huntington Beach, Mission Viejo, recently as Tustin um, and a few other cities um, with homeless uh, increase, uh, public safety, obviously, and um, obviously transportation and infrastructure. Those are the main concerns of most everybody in every city. Of course, Irvine is probably top of the list as far as um, um, neighborhoods, communities, and transportation. Uh, and I kind of rank public safety in there, too, because uh, not necessarily does Irvine have a huge problem with crime. It is increased on unbelievable levels in certain areas because of the influx of uh, new developments and um, uh, more people, but also it creates a transportation nightmare within the city. So people can't get from place to place, job, families get home, eat dinner, without maybe a traffic accident or... Um, so safety is a problem um, for our schools, for our um, our homes, for the people who live here, our neighbors. So that's the that's the 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 issue, the crux, if you will, of the problem. Um, I believe the board of supervisors. It, it, we see this is a six billion dollar county. And we are controlling or trying to control or trying to come up with solutions for homelessness, social services, law enforcement, you know, those types of things. And uh, we have a, we don't have enough affordable housing and um, we just don't have, uh, we just don't have enough to take care of the people that have moved into the county right now. And the politicians aren't paying attention. They're just feeding their wallets and jumping from place to place to become the king or whatever it happens to be. I'm just not sure what's going on, and I don't think they care. So it's troublesome for me. I'm asking all the candidates, and you mentioned an opening part of problems you're citing in around or Irvine and beyond in Orange County. In the Los Angeles Times uh, today, at this recording, that 
the Orange County Catholic Worker Elder Law and Disability Rights Center is filing a suit against Irvine and South County municipalities for not contributing the fair share for emergency housing. How, um, you, since you brought it up, how would you deal with committing to that regional share, both with the municipalities and around the county? Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, I, I read something from the voice of both the and the Orange County Register who brought that up. And I did see the lawsuit. So, and it includes San Clemente. It includes all of the beach cities and further south, including us. I think it's about time. I know people are probably, uh, politicians are probably holding their breath. Uh, but I think every city is a completely responsible 100% responsible for the homelessness. They have to contribute, along with federal and state government, to control this issue. And we there's a lot that has went into this. I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, I believe that the homelessness has increased because of the Orange County, quote-unquote, trifecta. So we have a lot of recidivism from... Um, AB 10957 and Prop 47 that um, occurred a few years back. So we have uh, a lot of people that should be behind bars or getting help for uh, drug problems out on the streets. They're being released. I understand that people were saying that we had a um, prison increase, so therefore we had to do something, but this is not it because now we have most of these people that are part of the homeless. We also have a, a mental issue because people that used to be put into a jail facility and then get assistance and help through um, our health care systems are not. They're just being back released right back into society without um, getting help. And uh, then, of course, you have the high-profile um, people that were in, in prison that um, some of their offenses that should be a problem, a safety issue, and should have never been released based on those um, dangerous AB 109, Prop 57, and Prop 47, there was a, leap, a loophole. So we've got sex traffickers, which there was. One right down the street from where I live. We have rapists that also happened in my city down in the new part of the Great Park. We have, um, we don't have drive-by shooters, at least I haven't heard of anything, but that happens everywhere. So there's a big problem here that we need to fix. So this parole issue by early release has really caused a lot of problems in the homeless area and also in the areas of our communities. I know we can all do something about it. We need to get together with businesses, and we need to get together with our wonderful nonprofits, our churches, and we need to get together with the developers to create additional low-income housing and maybe incentivize them in some particular way to provide a higher increase in percentage of low-income housing to get the low, get the homeless people, families that are out there that are one or two paychecks from being out on the street. They need something. And then our veterans, I, I know our military. I know our military 
in this state and across the United States would take care of their own. They would. But we're not doing anything. And I think it's about time we put together some kind of project where we get take care of this sooner than later. It's We have the highest level of homelessness in the country. So this is a real problem, and we all need to pitch in together. Well, Catherine Daigle, I'm... I'm struck by we have so much data being provided by really a, a lot of integrity, a lot of thorough research. We have a law school at UC Irvine. We have a criminology uh, section of the School of Social Ecology. And the kind of research they're coming up with, I'm not sure I'm seeing enough curiosity from the local office holders about the data that they've come up with. And I'm, I'm just struck by, uh, with respect to Prop 47, that the, the Kubrin-Bartow study that was done up until uh, 2015, that, that they thought that there, there were similar trends in other states that did not have a Prop 47-style policy change. So I'm just wondering what the local leaders are doing with the data that's being served up. And uh, we'll, we'll just talk strictly about Prop 47 right now. Are, are, are you curious about the hard numbers they're coming up with there to characterize what kinds of trends are out there in our communities? Well, I do understand uh, uh, the, there was a professor at UCI, I believe one or two years ago, mm probably about one or two years ago, just after this legislation had passed. This uh, particular professor, and right off the top of my head, I cannot recall her name. Charles Kubrin? Maybe that's it. It's been a couple of years. That's Kubrin so. Bartos that I was talking about, right. Okay, I, I don't recall her name. She did a study and found that this was not the best way to handle what's going on uh, with these pieces of legislation, that we were seeing no benefit from the release to um, um, the jails and the prisons because they were worried about the amount of prison being filled to to ready to bust. And it's just, it's not true. We have now open areas of cells that can be uh, used, and they are having an influx of money that they have, as I recall from the article, and without that article, I can't give you the exact numbers, but I'm certainly more than happy to address this in the future because this was an important article from UCI. Why the candidates aren't addressing or staying away from it, I don't know. And the, I don't know. Irvine, and, and some I'll of the you. data pertains to that recidivism is directly yeah. related to time served. The more time somebody serves, the more likely they are to return to crime once they're released. So there's a there's really a lot of information, and it's sort of a it, it's an interesting sort of a cognitive dissonance of the local leadership with one explanation and like really intense empirical work. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Catherine Daigle, running in the March 12 special election for the open seat in the orange 
Orange County Board of Supervisors, 3rd District. Early voting for one place will be Monday, March 11th, 7 to 8 a 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. in the Irvine City Hall, as well as other locations on March 8th, 9th, and 10th. Go to more details at ocvote.com forward slash early. So we were talking about Prop 47 and, and a little bit about the share of municipalities in the 3rd District to address emergency housing. There are other matters that I've been taking up with all of the the candidates. Is So how do you deal with the efficiencies of providing services in the unincorporated areas that are surrounded by the incorporated areas? So you've got public safety and other services that it's more expensive with those inefficiencies to, to cover, protect those unincorporated areas. How would you reconcile that inefficiency, Catherine Daigle? Well, without having uh, a budget in front of me, I, I, I'm, I'm just pulling this out of my head um, based on the year's experience of running a business. But uh, I do know in this city that when we have homeless or uh, emergency services that are required, we have and this is probably not the best answer, is we have police that will pick them up and take them to the nearest county shelter or place. I believe there's one here on off of Red Hill, right down from Irvine. And I do know the city takes quite a few of uh, people who are in need to that area so they can receive um, county services, city services, state services. I believe, yes, we do. That's why I brought up the fact that every city is responsible for this. We should have funds set away for every city for people who are in need of emergency services. If they border on the state, uh, rather the cities, the unincorporated, then obviously it would be both cities or three cities or four cities would be able to pick up some of those costs. Um, I'm sure there's an interest in taxing and that sort of thing or helping the unincorporated areas become um, uh, able to create a tax, a certain amount of a tax, obviously based on the population. So just off the top of my head, that's what I'm thinking. I don't have a complete answer for you because I didn't really – prepare for that. So that's as honest as I can give you. So the transit land uses in the unincorporated areas, should the land, Catherine Daigle, the land near train station be used for transit-oriented development? I don't know that. I don't think that's... It, to, me, to me, by saying that you're kind of push them in areas where we wouldn't habitate, habitate you know, live in. I think there's a better answer than that. I don't think that's probably the best answer. I think we need to think about a solution, come up with a better solution, so it becomes part of the population and not segregated into an area that nobody would want to live. Like we would end up putting, for example, the Southern California Edison was putting up a a substation in Irvine next to businesses. But it was a better decision to move that substation into an area where the train is, and there's nothing or no one around there. That's that's what should be used. 
or um, in that area. It shouldn't be people. I, I don't think that's a. I don't think that's a a a good answer. So that's that's one uh, efficiency. There's other efficiencies that that um, that are interesting to address. And an, another kind of the mother of all efficiencies, I guess, is the the in the absence of leadership on the national level although it's changed to some extent in the last uh, you know last several months what is the local government's role in mitigating against climate change i believe that local government states cities uh, not necessarily states cities should be involved in some sort of climate change. Green energy, for example. It's interesting. I was reading something on Quillette last night. Um, they were talking about green energy and the costs. Also, OAC uh, Cortez has been bringing this um, interesting... Uh, the, the Green New Deal, are you referring to? Yeah, I think is ridiculous, but in any event, it's very expensive. I wrote a paper on that, but there was a story on Quillet that brought up how expensive this is, solar panels and all this kind of stuff. The expense far outweighs what people are willing to pay. I don't know enough about nuclear energy, but it was brought up. I know when people hear it, they go, they get a little crazy. Um, I'm not sure but I think it could be a possibility. Whether cities get involved in that in local government, it's an option. Everything should be considered an option. and Every city should help contribute, even on a small scale, of uh, being greener, being uh, – and, and Irvine has done a fairly good job of it. Most of the lights and uh, in the city have been converted. There are companies that are building with uh, – vegetables and plants on the top of the building. It's it's actually quite an interesting um, um, source of energy that has that the city has taken on. I mean, even to the point where they have brought in goats to take care of uh, excessive grasses and weeds to help control some of the fire dangers. I think those are really wonderful ideas. So every city, small or large, can take part in a climate slash energy environment type of changes without costing so much to the general population. There are things we all can do, small business, large business, and the municipalities themselves. We also have water issues, especially here in California. We have the fire dangers, especially here in the California in Southern California in particular, where those of us are sharing um, the Orange County Fire Authority's business, it's, it's, it's becoming a bigger issue because California is becoming a drier issue, except for the last couple of months, which has been absolutely wonderful. So, so are, um, are you um, considering, are you working along, following what's being done in the the climate action campaign, the community choice energy efforts that are happening in Southern California, certainly in San Diego, and uh, there are there's a Green Ribbon Committee in Irvine. Are, are are any of those endeavors something that you would see 
uh, you would be interested in institutionalizing on the Orange County Board of Supervisors. Oh, absolutely. Any Anything that is cost-effective and saves energy and provide because we do have a lot of sun here. We have a lot of winds here. We don't have a lot of water, but there are certainly things that we can promote on a business level and also at a city municipality level that would be very cost-effective. So absolutely, I would. So I'd like to know your position on the funding for the veteran cemetery should it come from the city and entities that benefit from it uh being moved to the free their land for other uses what what funding would you be working with on the the veteran cemetery siding and all to tell you the truth i have been often on different sides of the i want a veteran cemetery built period i have i have my daughter's fiance's army, so my father was Air Force. My daughter's father was Air Force, so I have a military family background. I believe a veteran's cemetery is needed here in Orange County. That goes without saying. I wanted the veteran's cemetery built here years ago. Years ago, when Forest Lawn was here, uh, drafting up a contract until it was shut down. And then we went on to both parties, Democrat, Republicans, switching sides here. And it was the same people. They never change. They just, you know, depending upon who's supporting and money, either side of the candidates, um, you know, it, it drifts from side to side. Uh, originally, when the... Um, the signatures were going around to build it at the Great Park. I was all for that. I was for that. I even wrote something about that because I felt the El Toro Marine Base is exactly where it should have been. However, I don't see the grip being released here in Irvine. The current council, and even the previous council never did anything. So, the current council, and that's all I can talk about right this second, because they're relatively the same, have done nothing but push it down like the can down the street. We are still waiting for that veteran cemetery. If I was on that city council during previously during the um, signature, um, when I met Beth Crom out on the streets and Carolyn and, you know, they were gathering signatures and Carolyn um, McInerney uh no in mom oh oh mom I'm oh, sorry correct yes um I, I I lost my train of thought one second <laughs> so you were talking um, about advancing the cemetery at yes on the municipal the level yes and um so there was I would have no if I I wouldn't have dragged this out once the signatures were passed, they kicked it down the, the road again. I would have just built it. I would have built it on that strawberry farm. I would have built it wherever I knew I could get away with building it. Because now, once again, we're not building it. And I've heard other things that it's going to be moved to another city. And um, at this point, it's important to me that it gets built. I need that that cemetery could be built. I wish it was built here in the city. If I had any control over it at all, 
I would have built it here. No matter what. So, Catherine, Catherine Daigle, I'm sorry. Uh, th- we have time only for one more question, not uh, just for like a minute and a half. Uh, a reply is, what political action committees are supporting your campaign for the Board of Supervisor election? Thank you for asking me that, um, Claudia. I have run two times every other year for the last, I think, five years. That was brought up in the mailer. I don't have anyone supporting me, not anyone, just me. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Catherine Daigle, for sitting down with us today and as a candidate of the special election for the open seat in the Orange County Board of Supervisors District. Thank you, Claudia. It's been wonderful speaking to you again. Thank you. And that was Catherine Daigle. And for those of you who have not yet sent in your absentee ballot and are holding on to the March 12 election opportunity, the information for voting, any of the early pop-ups or the hours and details for the March 12th date of the special election are at ocvote.com forward slash early. Thanks again, all. Stay tuned. We're going to have James Fritz. We've got him uh, queued up now, calling it in from London. Stay tuned after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is James Fritz, an award-winning writer-playwright from South London, whose plays for stage and radio include Four Minutes, 12 Seconds, Parliament Square, and Rachel, Start Swimming, The Fall, Comment is Free, Death of a Cosmonaut, and Lava. And he's only in his but early 30s. He's won the Critics Circle Theater Award for Most Promising Playwright, a Bruntwood Prize for Playwriting, and the Emerson and Tinniswood BBC Audio Drama Awards. The first time a writer has won both in the same year. He's been nominated for an Olivier Award for Outstanding Achievement in an Affiliate Theater a BBC Radio Award for Best Single Drama, and was named runner-up in the 2013 Verity Bargate Award. He attended Bristol University and is a graduate of both the Channel 4 Screenwriting Program and the BBC TV Drama Writers Program. James has a number of original television series in development. Parliament Square, the play, is the subject of today's interview as it will be staged right here on campus starting March 9th. That's the Saturday, the end of this week. He comes to us today from London, but he'll be here soon. Welcome to Ask a Leader, James Fritz. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, this is such a pleasure to have you. I've I've heard about you since a a very casual conversation of maybe a couple of years ago, right after yeah, my neighbors were watching at the Bush Theater, your Parliament Square, and so 
it's a place carefully chosen. I just sort of poked around a little bit with Parliament Square. It's it's only recently uh, was there now a, a a suffragist who is a a figure that's in Parliament Square. So there's it's all about the voices. Of, let's talk about the origins of your thinking and what you're exploring with Parliament Square. Yeah, so Parliament Square is a play uh, about a uh, a young woman, a young mother who uh, gets up one day and leaves the house and leaves her family behind and heads to London, to Parliament Square, to commit an act of protest. And the play is broadly divided into three parts. The first part, uh, sort of looking at her in the process of going on the way to do this act, and then the other two parts about the thought from her act and what it means to her and what it means to her family. And it's basically this sort of big play all about uh, where our loyalties might lie in a sort of fractured, fragmented world. Is it to the causes we believe in, or is it to and, and, the, and the wider world, the wider sense of our humanity, or is it to uh, the people we love and the people close to us and our own little world? And so that's yeah, so that's broadly what the play is exploring, uh, uh, and uh, you know, and the sort of some of the themes I've been interested in for a long, long time that I've sort of articulated in, in Parliament Square. So this has ruminated. Have you sort of brushed shoulders with people that are trying uh, out their different activist voices and you're sort of watching the kind of continuum of casual relationship to all skin in the game kind of uh, activism in your midst? Well, so I've had a sort of a quite a mixed relationship with activism and I was when I was a teenager, I I considered myself an activist, and I, I did a lot of protesting. I was a member of lots of different groups, uh, you know, eco groups. I marched against the war in Iraq quite a lot. But then, sort of, something happened where it it just felt to me, and it was partly for me getting older and more cynical. But it felt to me like nothing was changing. You know what I mean? I wasn't, and these acts of protest, these marches, these, you know, demonstrations weren't achieving anything. And I think a lot of people my age in this country felt that way because it felt... And, and so you, you saw this sort of decade where there wasn't very much in terms of, like, widespread activism. Uh, and that's only kind of... Started, that's starting to bubble up again now. Is people are angry about various things that are going on and people are finding different ways to combat them. And so I, it felt, to me, like a good time not only to, like, explore my own past history and, like, sort of where my apathy came from and why why sometimes we will slip from being very active to very apathetic, but also to explore why that rage and that that idea of trying to change the world again through activism and through protest might start to be bubbling up in people again. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort, of, that's sort of my relationship to some of the, the subjects in the play. But it's very much a very specific act of protest that the, that the play deals with. Um, uh, uh, I don't want to give too much away about No, we're not. We're giving nothing away. Yeah, we're yeah, only, yeah. it's all um, an enticing. Yes. So you lead yes. us all to consider what worldly issues increasingly and more intensely are competing for our attention. And I, I must say, uh, for those uh, who are uh, not necessarily aware of Chris Grayling, but I know that you know all about him, the transportation secretary, he's creating a whole new host of distractions with his utterly incompetent handling of 
billions worth of the treasury of and so and then we have we have right locally we have a high school that is t- eating up a lot of broadband now, a high school that where they partied hardy around uh, beer pong and nazi salutes where i mean so there's so much yeah. clamoring all at once you know all different scales of intensity of of impact on our personal lives so you're very much with your central character having her figure out how her one voice can rise over the clamoring around her on either side of her. Well, absolutely. And it's this idea of, you know, often we'll label certain acts extremist or we'll, we'll declare people who form certain acts mentally unstable. But there's also, but there's something that I can't shake, which is that there's a, you know, it's almost like these extreme acts seem like a rational response to a lot of the stuff that you you hear about day to day. And you know, and there is there is a there's an element in the play, and I think that we all we all feel this that right when when the little things aren't getting noticed, it's time to do a big thing. And what that big thing is, I don't know. And what the right big thing to do is, I don't know. Because as you say, we're constantly being bombarded with new ways that the world feels like it's getting worse. And that takes real toll on people, I think. And I think people are finally starting to to react to that. You know what I mean? Right. And I, we're, we're not giving anything away because in, uh, early on we know that this that self-immolation as a subject is introduced very early. And there, that urgency registered when David Bakel a year ago, yeah. uh, set himself on fire with a suicide note. Uh, it was very clear what he was connecting, it was like the fossil fuel statement of that doing in his life there in Central Park. You chose self-immolation uh, extreme. It's an extreme measure by all counts. So what is, do you have a particular, I mean, you talked about your relationship, the complicated relationship with activism, but what does the self-immolation choice have relate to you? Well, to me, it was, it was all to do with you know, Western psychology and the way that we think about our, our forms of protest and how, you know, these images, so uh, these images of monks, say, you know, have gone around the world for years. And we sort of, from a Western perspective, we rationalize that. We say, oh, well, it's because, you know, of this reason or that reason or Tibet or whatever else. And that's part of, like, that's, that's part of their culture. There have been a few examples. There was someone that did it in Parliament Square in the 90s, uh, protesting about Britain's involvement in Bosnia, and nobody wrote about it. Nobody wrote about it. The few people that did write about it wrote about him as if he was mentally ill and it was an act of mental instability. And so it it was that line that I wanted to explore as to whether or not you took such an extreme act and placed it in a country like the UK, would the people around her and would the world around her actually react? To that act, or would they write it off as the act of a of a of a mentally unwell person? You know what I mean. And so, and right. it's very interesting. You bring up the poor man who did it in Central Park because that that I mean, it gave it almost gave me chills. And that how how similar it is in in lots of ways to the play, and how and how little that act achieved. You know what I mean? It's such a huge huge sacrifice, the biggest sacrifice you can give. It was, and it's right. And to say, David Bakel, and how, how, as listeners are are listening in now, does that name have a a, a clear connection to a, a very, you know, monumental kind of sacrificial act? And that's 
So that that does make the 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 point about how problematic a voice is in registering a grievance of that magnitude. It was only about climate change. Was all it was about. Yeah, but that but that's it. But, like, but climate change is. Right. Climate change is the is the end of life as we know it. So right. It seem, you know what seem what a lot of people will write off as an irrational act, setting yourself on fire. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, it, but it, it, some people would say that's a rational response to the end of the world, trying to attract people's attention. And, and I should say here here out that, that I, I didn't write this play as an endorsement of self-immolation and like the idea of extreme protest. And my I think my opinions on on what Cat, the main character, does and what people, you know, people that do that do. So it's sort of irrelevant. For me, it's much more about asking those questions yes. and looking at that question of, like, of like, what do we do when somebody does this and how do we feel when somebody does this and really trying to get under the skin of our, of, like, modern reactions to extreme forms of protest and activism or whatever you want to call them. And protest, like as in the case with Dave Bakel and in your central character, Cat, the choice of acting as an individual versus a group that you show right. the individual there and it's a and the, the arc is really stunning. It's a stunning arc. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is playwright James Fritz. His play Parliament Square is going to be directed by Jane Page and will be performed at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts at the XMPL uh, venue here on campus March 9th through March 17th and James Fritz he'll be in town next week and he'll be be appearing at the Talkbacks on March 13th, 14th and 15th. So there are very artful ways and time and spaces that you do, and you've there are some amazing devices that you get so much done with a very kind of a spare kind of stage direction. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you figured out how you're going to make time roll and how us hear the inner dialogue of your main character? Yeah, sure. So as I said earlier, the play's sort of broadly broken up into three sections. I really wanted... For me, for, for me, playwriting is all about the use of form and the use of language and, how, and like the choices we make. It's not just the story we choose to tell, but it's also the ways we, in which we choose to tell that story. Yes. And so I'd, I'd long had this idea about a woman who makes this sort of sacrifice and, and, and like leaves her family behind. Um, but, I hadn't, but it took me years to find the right way of telling it. And, and, and what I hit upon with Parliament Square was to have this sort of ferocious, almost intense opening 25 minutes or so where we get right, where I use language and, and, and these two voices to get right inside the, the sort of consciousness of the main character and then to have a breath out and to, to spend, you know, a few months with her in the immediate aftermath of the act. And then finally, to, to, to see the sort of long-term consequences of something like this. So, like, writing for the theatre is such a wonderful gift because you can, you can do anything. You can take people anywhere. So long as you hold their hands strongly enough, they'll go with you. And so I decided to use... The play has a, uses a lot of, uh, like, linguistic techniques to jump us through the years and to really see the sort of fallout of Kat's act uh, on her and her family. So yeah, so that was my thing. Really, I, I really like for the play to work. You really need to 
like, move. Believe in, in, in why she's doing it and like understand it from her perspective. But you also need to step back and look at how look at the consequences of an of a sort of an action as horrifying as this and and really because like otherwise if I if I just did the one without the other it would be almost like irresponsible on either side if you see what I mean so I was very concerned that I like, I made sure to capture not just the sort of thrill and the interest and the sort of voyeurism of of some also take a step back and see what that action like looks like within the wider picture and in talking a little bit about this uh, setting and all and devices that are used i want to hasten to mention to listeners there are trigger warnings because of strobe lights and i'm I'm trying to think of some of the other things and there's no intermission it's a 90 minute play so people be aware of that and you also have that in the program there so i just want jane was very adamant that i make sure i i I bring this to people's attention so um, people who suffer that they know that they've got to be careful about that so well speaking of jane so we're Working with Jane, how how has that gone? And you've she's mentioned to me that you give the directors a great deal of latitude. How has that been working with Jane? Yeah, well, I, you know, to me, theater is a is a collaborative medium. That's the exciting thing about it. You know, I write something, but whatever I write is only you know five percent of the thing that people see. It takes a bunch of other people, actors, directors, designers you know, stage managers to make a live experience and that live experience changes night after night after night. And I, as the writer, have no control over that. So what I try and do is build a platform that I'm happy with and something that hopefully inspires people to want to pick it up and make it. But once they make that decision, I'm I'm more than happy for them to make their own choices because for me that makes the thing so much better. You know what I mean? I'm only... I'm only one guy, and like having all these intelligent, creative people trying to make something mean something to them based on my words. Like I, I feel like by trusting them as much as possible, my words are only going to get better. You know what I mean? And so with Jane, she she saw the play in London, right at the Bush, mm-hmm. tra- at, at the Bush Theatre. Yeah, when it when it had its premiere. Uh, and then she tracked me down, and we've we've met up in London. And I loved her vision for the play. I loved her reasons for wanting to do the play. And I just said, "Go for it." You know what I mean? I love the idea that it's being done with students because yes, it's like I told you before about the sort of failure of my generation to kick on in terms of like act, actual activism and change. And like I get so inspired when I teach and when I talk to you know teenagers and students like these days because. They have to be so much more switched on than I was because the world is out to get them. But they are doing stuff about it and they are like making a difference. And it is, I find that like so inspiring. And so the idea of having a bunch of engaged like students tackling the play and like making it their own like really, really excites me. So that was a question I wanted to get to, and you you uh, you lead me to it here, and that how uh, college productions are getting a lot done, and and it's where I guess it's a it's a kind of a creative formulative sweet spot is these are young voices getting formulated, and they're they're finding their way, and they're um, and in fact the 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 character has in mind, I don't think I'm giving anything, she she has an idea, a, a reason, 
And that, that she has a reason, and the director may have a reason for why the protests. But that's um, that's another sort of well, that's a, capturing a couple of the questions is about the college student uh, signing on to this play, signing on to a reason for what would be the basis for the protest, and formulating their voices. So, and have you worked with other college productions before Jane Page is here? Yeah, a few of my plays have been done by a few universities, one or two in the States, I think, mostly in the UK. Um, But I've never been uh, as involved as I have with this one, partly because Jane was kind enough to reach out to me. Often they just happen without me with my blessing, and that's absolutely fine. But also I think because Parliament Square, it's a really important play to me, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm very excited to see what happens next with it. And this is the first big production that I've been involved with uh, after the original production. Absolutely wonderful. As far as the reasons for the behind... So there's a... I made a very big and tough decision early on in writing the play, which is that I'd never reveal why Kat... Like, the specific reason Kat has for doing what she does. Because... As soon as I do that, the play very much, it doesn't become about the ethics or the, the, our interest in, in the act of self-immolation. It becomes about whether or not it's worth self-immolating for that specific... For that one, right. It diminishes course, it. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, that, and that becomes a whole different argument. And so I hopefully what anyone who picks up the play and anyone who directs the play, anyone who's in the play and anyone who comes to see the play, watching it... Ideally, they will all have their own thing that they can imagine doing it for, or they can imagine Cat doing it for. And hopefully, as the play, get, if the play, if I'm lucky enough for the play to keep being done down the years, what we're up against will keep changing, and so what Cat is up against will keep changing. And so, and that to me is really, really exciting. You know, I think like one of the reasons I'm so excited is to come over there and yes. see and watch it again is that I think it, the play will mean so much, like it'll, be, it'll feel so different to an American audience than it did Absolutely. to an audience in London. Absolutely. It, just the first. I mean, it felt so different to an audience in Manchester than it did to the audience in London. And that is one of the most exciting things about being a playwright, is that all these things are so out of your control and help totally change the way that people read your work in ways that are absolutely thrilling. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super thrilled to, to be able to sit there and and feel that in the room and see how, see what those differences are and hear, hear what people's differences of opinion are like after the show. So, and folks, who, if they're ticket holders for the March 13, 14, or 15 performances, then you will have an opportunity to hear James Fritz and, and have him and react and, and direct questions to him. Well, I just, to the point you make about withholding the reason so it, do, it, it keeps it a wide open, more powerful kind of message, I guess it, it's sort of like how radio works sometimes, oftentimes, so much better than the, the, the visual kind of entertainment medium is that the, the, it, imagination is so much more expansive on radio and you've had radio experience so i see sort of both of those keep keeping it open keeping the message open keeping the medium open like with radio it's it's a much massively much more monumental kind of of a project absolutely the i mean both radio and theater have certain ambiguities yes about them because you can't you can't control the, the the rest of someone's experience in the theater you, in the theater the 
someone's reaction to your show is totally dependent on who they are, where they've been that day, who they're sitting next to, you know, whether they have a hangover, whether they're feeling unwell, whether they're feeling really happy. It's a sort of, it's a phenomenological experience that is totally out of your control because it's a live experience. And the same thing with radio is when you have done radio plays, you have to imagine that somebody's driving, somebody's doing the washing up, somebody's gone for a run, somebody's just got it on in the background. And it's like, how do you make something for that will be, that will mean different things to all those people but will still be as engaging to all those people and that i love i love like just planting enough of a seed that because our imagination is way better than anything i can show anyone so if i can just provoke that imagination to go off on a train of thought then someone will have a much better experience than if i spell every last thing out to them you know what i mean absolutely well i can't let you go without you telling us a little bit about any new work of yours yeah, so I'm writing a few plays. I'm, uh, the, I'm writing a play for Audible, which will hopefully, which will be released hopefully both as an audio drama to download, but also uh, will receive a, 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 a proper theatrical production somewhere. We're still talking about that. Uh, I'm under commission. I've got my first American commission. I'm oh. under commission from the studios here in Washington. So that's exciting. I'm sort of, I'm, it's a nice opportunity to think about a totally different audience for me. And then I'm doing a couple of new plays for, for theatres here in London, one for a little new writing theatre called The Yards, which does great experimental work, uh, and then for the big uh, Bridge Theatre, which is a new big theatre they've opened uh, by Tower Bridge, and that's going to be a big, it's, my, it's sort of my first big family drama with lots of twists and rows and all sorts of fun stuff happening, and I'm writing that at the moment, and that's re- I'm really having fun writing that. So lots to be going on with. Unbelievable bandwidth that you can manage so many projects at once. But I guess you're sort of resolving different issues along different stages of each of these different works. Is that how the creative process works for you? Yeah, it's nice. It can be nice to switch from one to the other. But it's also like a lot of my plays are very, as people who will come to see Parliament Square will find out, like they have quite like tough things that they're dealing with and and big sort of tough questions and sort of quite like you know difficult things happen in them and yet and i think one of my ways of of, of remaining a sort of quite positive sunny person is by constantly getting out all my angst and aggro about the world and about all these questions i don't know how to solve through my work so i'm constantly trying to find new new ways to explore the things that irritate me or scare me or bother me or you know or everything else and so i quite like having lots of different ideas on the go because it always keeps me engaged you know what i mean and keeps me focused and and they also they all end up feeding into each other as well which is really nice well wonderful well i want to thank you james fritz for being on ask a leader today james fritz is the playwright his play parliamentary square it's going to be performed at uc irvine starting march 9th and going through march 17th he'll be appearing as i said at talkbacks on march 13 14 and 15 donations for the student food pantry will be accepted at the theater at xmpl theater tickets are available at the claire trevor school of the arts and uh, you can call 949-824-2787 or at the school's box office that's open at particular hours. James, Fritz, I can't wait to meet you when you come here. Have a safe flight, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Oh, Thanks so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
That's my wrap, folks. Next week, we'll, what the heck, it'll be carrying today's themes in the second segment. I'll have on Andrea Leon Grossman, Deputy Director of Azul, with the whole cadre of activists uh, with the ocean environmental care. So just can't get enough of this activism. The first segment, though, will be Daniel Watt, who will post us on the upcoming Girls in STEAM conference next month at UCI. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>